Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 47 of the Build My Online podcast. I'm your host, Terry, and you're listening to the podcast that helps you build an online store to get more income, time, and mobility freedom in your life. So welcome to the show. Before we get into this week's episode, uh, a couple of housekeeping things. So what we need to do is to stay tuned to the website this week at buildmyonlinestore.com. I recently sourced a product in China. It's a nifty little travel wallet that makes kind of traveling more convenient. So every time I'm at the airport, you know, I'm holding my board boarding pass, tickets, uh, immigration forms, and some different ID cards because I have two passports, so it's a huge uh, pain in the ass. So I've designed a product out in China. It kind of holds everything together. And so what I also did was I wrote a blog post on how I got this idea, uh, sketched up the draft, found a supplier, did some due diligence, and contacted them to make a sample. So uh, yes, there are also pictures that will go up with this post, so stay tuned on the website to check it out. I basically documented every... Uh, virtually every step I took uh, in this journey. So it'll be fun to check out if you're looking to source products in China. And in some other news, we got some more iTunes review, another five-star one coming up this week, and we're almost at 45-star reviews. So if you join the show, uh, do give me some love on iTunes. It helps with the rankings and it gets more people on board that are into e-commerce. And this week's review comes from Hella OG. Uh, I guess you live in Northern California, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be using Hella, but uh, he says, great podcast. This is a great podcast. Uh, my wife and I are in the process of creating an online business and listening to all the other internet business gurus are great, but none is focused on subject matter, e-commerce, like Terry. Keep up the good work. Right, awesome. And one more thing to check out, uh, hop over to ecommercefuel.com, uh, Andrew Udarian's site, who is also a good friend of the show and a former guest. He has a new post called Nine E-Commerce Experts You Should Be Following. So definitely check it out because it's hard to find quality content for the individual e-commerce entrepreneur like yourself. So there's a lot of good resources uh, by following those people that'll help you grow your business. So with that being said, let's get into this week's episode. Thanks for coming on the show uh, this week, Chris. So we're going to talk about your business, uh, EcoChick. So very quick, uh, who are you and what do you do? My name's Chris Bucknell. Um, I run a business called EcoChic Online, and it sells uh, eco-friendly furniture and homewares all over Australia. Nice. And so how would you describe this business to a complete stranger? We wanted to create a unique store that focused on a niche in the market and not try to compete with the big discounters or the people selling, you know, a thousand different coffee tables. We wanted to offer a limited selection of beautifully made and also products that also have like a conscientious dimension, you know, and that they're sustainable or fair trade or non-toxic, you know, in some way that, pe- that they are, you know, it's the conscientious choice. All right. And so what are your main product lines in EcoChip? If you were decorating your home, we could do it from tip to toe. So rugs, furnishings, sofa, coffee tables, lighting. So your pendant lighting, table lamps, floor lamps, bedding, bath towels, candles, and accessories and art. So there's nothing that you that you can't find with us 
for your home, except we, we're sort of limited in, say, let's say, pots and pans, what you might put in the kitchen. But anything that would be considered a decorator item or a furniture, we sell. I see. So how many products do you guys have right now? About 800. Wow. And did you always start out with 800 or what was the beginning like? No, we started out with... Uh, about a hundred. I wanted to make sure that we had, when you opened up any category, I know that when I get to a website and I see that there's two things in a category, it's empty. I always think, oh, the website's being built. And so, and I may not ever return to that site. So we felt like it needed to look good when you first landed on it, made sure we had a few products in each category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you just go to a site that's kind of like a skeleton, it's like, uh, I don't really feel comfortable buying. Are they still building it out? Or I'm possibly a dinosaur in this area. I um, just met with a bit of a guru and he said, oh, better done than perfect. And, you know, the first few people that find your site will tell you, you know, oh, this is a dead link or do you realize this page isn't working in that? And it's a bit of like like test marketing. So I'd say the jury's out on this. Um, you know, I think I'm 41, and I'm of a generation that you don't launch unless it's perfect. But I don't know that that's how people do it these days. Well, I think I think people still get stuck in that phase, but they get stuck in the phase that they never launch. And I think that's something you want to avoid, right? Yeah, of course. Because really, I mean, do you want to spend that much time and money um, and only to find out that it's not a good idea? You know, a soft launch, I think, isn't a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe you start with a small amount of people and then you kind of build from there. Because I think in the end, it's just getting that feedback loop going, right? And kind of, you know, I think version one is better than version none is what someone told me. So. Oh, that well put. I like that. And you also can then build your site in response to the initial feedback. You know, so if everyone's calling you about floor lamps, you know, and nobody's calling you about you know, something else, then you think, oh, gosh, we better, you know, bulk up that section of our site. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. And so, you know, when you started out, how did you find your first customers? We're very naive. And we just thought if you build it, they will come, you know, so we built it and we thought we were quite clever in, um, you know, hiring an SEO company. And, you know, this was, about, you know, three and a three years and a few months ago. And back then people would be like, what's SEO? You know, now every everybody knows what it is. We took out um, three big ads in major magazines. And what we got was radio silence. It was, it was they didn't come. And, and the first month, you know, I was able to look at our stats. And I think in the first month we had five, five or 10 people visit the site. And when we got our very first phone call after two weeks, I was literally jumping up and down. Like, and then, you know, so the next month, it was, you know, 150 people. And then the next month, it was 500 people. And that's the that's the thing with the internet. It's just a tremendous snowball effect. And, you know, and without understanding how Google works, I know that, you know, if you build something good, and a few people come and they stay on your site, Google thinks, oh, maybe this site's okay, we'll send a few more people their way. So, our full page, our ads in, in, in magazines, I don't think they did anything. It was all about waiting for, you know, Google to take effect. I see. So you guys did SEO from day one? Like you guys hired someone to just build articles and links for you guys? or Day one. And we built our site perfectly. So our content management system has everything, you know, geared towards SEO. So when we got an SEO firm on board a month before we launched, they didn't have to do any on what I guess was called on-page work because we nailed it. You know, every image had the keyword, the the title had the keyword, the description had the keyword, meta, you know, everything was totally vertically integrated. The only mistake we made was we didn't know that if we cloned an item, 
that the um, that the title had to be unique or that Google won't count that ne- that extra page. So that was one mistake we made, but I consider that pretty small considering what the mistakes other people make. Yeah, and did you learn SEO on your own before this or how did you figure this out? Because most store owners I talk to, you know, they they get their store up and they realize like, what, what's SEO? I'm not in Google. Like, how does this work? When I was talking to different web designers, I think I just asked the question like, well, how do we get you know, how do how does Google find us and why is it that some companies are on the first or second page? And, and I had a really good um, web design company and they, you know, sort of used the word SEO. And when I went through their tutorials on how to use their content management system, I mean, there's a section which is you need to fill out these three boxes, that, you know, and it was a 20, you know, really it only takes 20 minutes to teach someone how to build their site to be SEO friendly. And if the content management system is set up that way, you would have to be an idiot to not fill out the, you know, the meta title box or the, <laughs> it's very, very simple. There's no reason to be in the dark about it. Yeah, because I think, you know, before you get into this whole world, you think Google figures it out somehow, but you never bothered to think about how they actually do it. And then when you find out, you're like, oh, it makes kind of makes sense. And this is how it actually works. So you know, the idea that Google, you know, likes older sites better than newer and Google likes it if other big sites like you and, you know, it's trying to figure out how relevant you are and that we always approach it is just make our site good and don't do a bunch of ridiculous content to try to trick it, you know, don't try to trick it, just do a good site and Google will see that people like your site and will reward you. Yeah, and I think especially with e-commerce, you know, because I think you have these internet guys that make, you know, ebooks, PDFs that they can afford to just spam a different site because their products are digital, right? Whereas, you know, if you're building a bricks and mortars business on e-commerce, you know, you have all this inventory you have to move and you can't really afford to just spam your site with, you know, Black Hat SEO and then tank your rankings too. That's right. And we, and I um, I have to say, I told our SEO company no with a number of things they want to do. I just said, no way. That's not going to look good. No, I'm not putting that extra text there. They would send me write-ups, which I would pretty much change 85% of what they wrote because it was too ridiculous. Yeah, you know. So since we're on the SEO topic, you know, how did you? Like, what was your strategy for link building and the content? Like, did you go reach out to other bloggers, or you were just writing articles on the site, or what was your main kind of channels there? I have to say that is a mystery. We don't do any link building. Our SEO company does. I don't know where they are or who they are. So they reach out. But what we do is, I have a PR person. Um, we share that content with our SEO people. So it's the old thing, which is write one piece of content and let it do a lot of things for you. So, for example, we created a separate blog with lots of links back to our site and lots of keyword linking, but we actually made it a good blog. It wasn't just like, you know, a silly fake site to to create links. You know, we, we tried to make everything authentic. We've never asked anybody to have a link on our site. What we try to do is just earn it. So the biggest feed to our site is, um, and I know I'm jumping around topics here, is um, after Google, then comes Facebook, then comes Pinterest. So it's like people are creating links because we have fantastic photos for them to link from, you know, so give people a reason. Fake links will eventually Google a cotton on to it. Have things on your site that people want to link to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the end, you're still building links, but you're just building in a more natural way, basically. That's right. That's right, which takes time. And so let's go back to kind of your business a little bit. So, you know, you were talking about when you first started out, you know, you had five, ten visitors a month, and then you got your first phone call. And kind of how did it keep growing from there, uh, you know, from that first phone call? Like, did they did that person buy, and then they <laughs> told a friend? or? Do you know, 
they didn't buy, and our very first order got canceled. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> That's always the most exciting order to get the first one. <laughs> We had a couple orders before we sent it. A couple of more orders came in, and she was so lovely. I remember, she, I remember her, and she said, "Oh, my husband just bought me. A, it was a chair. My husband just bought me a chair as a surprise for my birthday, so I don't need this chair." It was just really organic, you know. It's it's just been an upward trajectory. We've never had it really go backwards, except for you know to do with sort of time of year. Like our numbers tank mid December to mid January because. Um, nobody's shopping online. They're all on vacation, enjoying Christmas. Their shopping's done. So um, besides that, we've pretty much had an upward trajectory. And I think that it's a good site. And so we've also had a lot of people share the site with other people. We know that anecdotally. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, it kind of like it's like the snowball effect of the Internet, too. It's just kind of, you know, you just slog away at it every day and then it just gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> we don't approach our business like Oftentimes in Australia, you'll see like, oh, there's a fish and chips business. Well, we should open a fish and chips business. So you just open one 10 blocks down and it's exactly the same. We didn't approach our business like that at all, which is we're going to do things better, more different. We're going to offer better customer service, better products, knowing that that would generate a buzz that people would share. So, you know, just one story I had was this woman ordered some chairs for her Christmas dinner. They arrived and the courier just literally must have thrown them off the back of the truck. There was bits poking out and they were ruined. And it was like three days before Christmas. Well, she really needed one was damaged beyond use. So I went and found that same chair at a brick and mortar retailer and paid horrendous amounts to have it overnight shipped. Well, she then went on Facebook and shared Oh my gosh, I've just dealt with the best company ever, EcoChic. They're so good. You should shop with them. And, you know, she had God knows how many friends, but quite a few from memory. That's like an advertisement for the cost of, you know, some extra shipping. That that was much less expensive than an ad. Yeah, exactly. And and kind of it once it's there, it's there on her page forever too, right? And- that's right. That's right. So we try to um, let good customer service be part of the snowball effect. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned this. I was just talking to a guy that des- designs shopping carts, and he was saying one of his clients, uh, it's a company called Tokidoki, and I, th- I, th- I think they do, like, comic type of stuff, like, you know, really, like, Hello Kitty type things. And what they have is they have uh, Tattoo Tuesdays every Tuesday, and some fan will post a picture of, like, a real tattoo of them, of, like, the company logo or, like, some artwork they did on their bodies. And, you know, you talk about lifetime advertising. It doesn't get better than that. That is amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah, exactly. And, and sorry, so let's not get off topic here. So, you know, if we go back to sales and marketing now, you know, what are kind of your main channels you use? You were saying, you know, search, uh, Facebook, and Pinterest. So how does, you know, Pinterest work out for you guys? Marketing pretty much comes down to um, social networking and PR. And I would say that there there, there are two platforms. We, we just can't afford traditional advertising and really just don't find it to be that effective. Um, so with social networking, we're still learning. We feel like we're 10 years too old for this, to be honest, um, because we don't really use social networking on a personal level, myself or my partner. So we're having to learn the language and use it for our business. And we see a lot of businesses out there using it badly, like thinking, oh, those kids love Facebook, you know, and so they put something up. Whereas every morning I read an article in, you know, I don't know, entrepreneur.com or fast company or something to try to get educated on this so we try to give people things content and information that that we would want ourselves if we were engaging in 
you know, reading a company's Facebook page. Um, and with Pinterest, um, we actually, this was somewhat organic in that we just found all this traffic coming from Pinterest. We realized people were pinning our images. And we thought, well, we're designers. We create fabulous mood boards. So let's create our own boards on Pinterest. We've started 12 boards and we haven't even launched it on our site. And already we have followers. And every day I get, you know, an email saying this person's just repinned your pin. And and I think I looked and the stats where we're getting 5,000 impressions a day of eco-chic products. And uh, it's just, it is the perfect platform for our product line. It's very photography based and our site is beautiful things and beautiful photographs. So um, they're, they're a match made in heaven, I think. You know, kind of something I've noticed about Pinterest is that I usually pin stuff that I think I'll buy in the future, you know, either like clothes or kind of furniture. And, you know, a lot of female friends I have, you know, they always, you know, they're single, they post pin wedding dresses and all this stuff they want to have at the wedding. You know, maybe someday they'll use it. <laughs> that's right. But I think that's what Pinterest, makes Pinterest a little special, whereas Facebook, you just post something, you know, you like it, you forget about it. And kind of Pinterest is like this thing you put in the back of your mind that someday, hey, maybe I'll buy this thing too. So Yeah, I never thought about it, but, but Facebook is so temporal. And, you know, I had somebody who's a bit of a guru say, you know, it doesn't even matter if it doesn't get what you your content doesn't get read. They just see the, the eco-chic logo scroll by on their wall. And I think that's why we have a hard time. Is it, Whereas with Pinterest, we see a direct link, a direct reward. We see that people have it in their boards of things that they love, you know, and that it's not going anywhere. And then other people are looking at those boards and repinning those items. So, so when you guys started your board, did you guys have a pretty big following already or did you just start from scratch there too? No, I just started from scratch three weeks ago. We have not even... We, have, we are going to announce both on our website, Facebook, our blog, everything that we've just done our Pinterest boards because we did not want people to go to them and see anything empty. Um, and I think it'll be good because they are mood boards. So what we did is we made sure that only maybe one in every five or six pictures is something from our site. And the rest of the image, images are things that we love. We've created beautiful boards and just sprinkled in our items and not made them just some over-the-top sales advertisement. They're interior design mood boards. We're interior designers. We have something to offer people, which is a great eye and some original content. And we we also don't do a lot of repinning. We avoid that at all costs because we want our boards to be unique on Pinterest, not just the same images people, you know, style hunters have been seeing over and over again. We want want to get something new on there. So we've tried to create beautiful boards, like I said, with the sprinkling, not just here. Here's our stuff. Yeah, Don't you love it? I think when you do, some people do that on social media, they're like, hey, you know, check out our sale and, you know, buy this, buy that. And you're just like, ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> but if it's something like, hey, check out this thing that looks cool, you're like, oh, I'll look at it again. Yeah. So we just, because we're learning, we're sort of new. We just came up with a Facebook calendar, which is what we're going to post every day. So it's, for example, day one might be something we have on sale. Day two might be a link to somebody who has a beautiful Pinterest board that isn't ours. Day three might be um, something we posted on our blog. Day four might be a brand new product that's in. Day five might be something that a tech product that we're sort of developing. Like, what color do you think we should paint it? Like engaging people. The fifth day might be like a um, styling tip. So every day is something different. And yes, of course, we let people know when there's sales on. And of course, we actually offer things just to Facebook readers. So we say, hey, Facebook readers, thanks so much. Here's a coupon for blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, it can't be 
every day, like buy, 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 buy. We don't like that. It probably works for other companies, but we don't like it. So we're not going to impose on other people something that we wouldn't like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, understood. And do you guys use uh, YouTube or kind of other channels? No, but I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about doing a sort of, so we do this, we do um, a lot of photo shoots. So a lot of this lifestyle images you see on our site are in my living room with backing boards, like take my stuff out and set it up. I have a background in set design. So um, I was thinking, gosh, we should, you know, get a video camera and do one on some a three minute video on styling tips, how to style your coffee table or, you know, different ways to arrange art. And um, I think it's really promising. It's just it's one of those ideas that's in the to do list that has not happened yet. Yeah, exactly. Because I asked that because YouTube is kind of different where like Google, you have to be found and ranked YouTube, you kind of just stick yourself in the water where everyone's searching and then kind of they can find you there instead of like your organic SEO. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. How, yeah. I mean, some businesses are doing really well on YouTube. You know, some are still new to it, but I think, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, you don't, you never want to focus your marketing just on one channel too, right? You want to diversify and kind of reach everyone as much as you can too. I'm sure businesses are feeling what we're feeling, which is like, I literally just had a, a conversation with my partner. And she said, what's Instagram? And I said, I'm not really sure, but I think we're supposed to be on it. You know, and it's like, oh, she goes, oh God, not another social networking platform that we have to learn and embrace. And, you know, neither of us completely understand Twitter, but, you know, our Facebook posts to Twitter. So you have to find the balance. We are trying to learn as much as we can, but we could literally spend all day, eight hours a day, just worrying about social networking and not working on our business. So I think you, you know, you pick and choose and you know, you're not going to do it all yeah exactly from what i know uh instagram is kind of for a younger crowd i think and it's kind of just like twitter but it's with pictures but but it's it's more of like you know you post you take a picture and you post what's on your mind like you know you're eating breakfast you take a picture of your breakfast and then you upload to instagram and basically that's what everyone does like kind of a daily life snapshot type of thing yeah it's hard for somebody who's 41 to get really excited about it let me tell you (laughs) yeah exactly like the companies i've noticed that do really well on instagram are kind of like fashion labels you know, they have clothing, they just take pictures of people wearing their t-shirts and then they can hashtag it, right? And anytime you search that hashtag, uh-huh. uh, you find their products and kind of that's the unique part of it. Okay. Another thing I'll have to research and learn about and figure out whether it's applicable to us. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right. And so let's move on into kind of PR a little bit because I know you have a PR agency, uh, I believe uh, Sophie's agency. So, you know, how does she help you guys out? Okay. Well, um, PR has been, I just instinctively felt that this was an important avenue. And I don't think a lot of companies do. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but um, I just thought that it, if you're flipping through a magazine, I will often not look at the ads, but those pages that are like, we're loving or get the look or, you know, things in Emerald, I always stop on those pages. And many times I tear them out and will go to the site and consider buying from them. So I thought, how do we get on onto these pages? PR. Found Sophie through a friend. Our, our PR is through Sophie and also through another company called Pressloft, which is absolutely brilliant. And that's where we have all of our high-res images sit on basically what's an FTP site with all of the product details, like pricing. So journalists can come along, do a keyword search, find our products, and download them. So between – Sophie does a couple press releases a month. She also comes up with, like, fun ideas. Like, you know, if, if a magazine's running a contest, she'll contact us to maybe do a giveaway. So between the two, Pressloft and Sophie, and Sophie manages our Pressloft account – we have probably 60 or 70 images downloaded by journalists a month. And I cannot tell you how often a friend or a supplier goes, 
God, every magazine I pick up has Ikushi. How do you do it? Like it's some, you know, I got a PR, magic PR wand or something. We spend about $1,000 to make that happen. That's $1,000 for 60 or 70 items in different publications. Now, an eighth page ad in one of the interior design magazines here in Australia is $1,000. You know, you can't even compare the two. I mean, I get a call a week from somebody wanting to ad- advertise, and I still to this day feel guilty. I go, oh, no, we can't afford it. But the truth is, it's just a waste of money. So let me get this right. These are This is a platform where you upload your product photos with a logo, and then people can download it to put in a magazine ad? or Yep, so journalists can access this. They register as journalists. They can access the site for free. So we pay a monthly fee, and we every time we've had an opportunity, we, if we've reached our image cap, we go up. It allows you two press releases a month. Journalists can do call-outs. Do you know what call-outs are? Hey, I'm looking for anything with polka dots and stripes. And we can link them, we can send them a link to the products on Pressloft that fit their their need. Um, so in the old days, somebody would have to, a journalist would have to contact Sophie, do you have a high-res image of, of this? If she didn't have it, she'd have to contact us. I'd email Sophie and Sophie would email them. This is at best a 24-hour process. And for a lot of journalists, especially the ones working for things like Sydney Morning Herald and your, you know, your week, weekend newspapers, they don't have that kind of time. They can hop on Pressloft, do a keyword search, and in 15 minutes have all of the product images and also how much they are and where to get it from. You know, so we were always getting calls from magazines. Can I confirm the price on this? And, you know, et cetera. They have instant access to the information. It's brilliant. So that's when you know that you're going to be on a magazine when they ask you to, con- to confirm the price, right? Yeah, that's it. So when these journalists, so we get a report of every journalist that's downloaded an image and when they think the publication date is. Um, we've just stopped looking. I'm not trying to sound immodest, but there's honestly just too many. And we just, uh, my favorite game is in the supermarket when I'm in the checkout line is to pick up a magazine and flip to the back and under suppliers see if I can find Eco Chic. And I usually do. <laughs> so how does this balance out with social then? Like if you looked at your whole traffic, like your whole pie visitors to your site and you know what percentage would come from this kind of press loft uh, kind of journalist PR agency where you know the other half comes from social or how would that break down kind of from what you see honestly I'm going to give you a terrible answer because I should I have access to the information because anybody that places an order on EcoChic has to say where they heard about us so and also you know in Google Analytics but I don't know because I have never compiled that data I can tell you that I think it's about 30% of people go directly to our site, which means that could only be from either seeing us in a magazine or a friend telling them about it. So that's pretty high. But we also know about it anecdotally because a lot of these people just call. See, what this reaches an, an audience that isn't online all the time. This reaches your... We get calls from like little six-year-old ladies like, I saw a clock and I just really like it and think my daughter would like it. Can you please send it? And we get a phone order and they haven't even been online. You do see what I'm saying? So we're reaching the people that read magazines, that read newspapers, you know, that don't Google search for everything that they want. Yeah, because I guess if your customer is not really online or Google, what's the point in advertising there with AdWords, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we think that this reaches out to another demographic. And and older people, they have computers, so they will go to a computer and type in the website. But they may not find us by searching. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a difference. It's a whole different dynamic of how they got to us. Yeah, exactly. But if they come from word of mouth, I'm sure the conversion rate is much higher, too, where 
you know, if they just type, you're typing them directly, they already know what kind of you're about, and they're just kind of curious to find out more too. So. The other thing that that I that I think is really important with PRs, people fundamentally understand the difference between an editor putting it when an editor puts a product up, it's like they're endorsing it. As versus an ad, which everybody knows is paid for. You're talking about like in like a Cosmopolitan or some magazine, right? Or- yeah. So like if you're looking at, you know, Real Living or, or um, Bell or something, you know, you flip through. I'm sure it's the same. I actually don't read fashion magazines, but, you know, they have a bunch of fashion items or interior design items. They're basically saying, hey, this is cool. We like this. And, and the reader knows that nobody's paid to have those things put in there. The editor has picked them. A journalist has said, hey, we like this. That carries so much more weight than an advertisement by a store. Because then yeah, your, cost, it, your costs are so much more different and you have more, I guess you have a built-in endorsement factor by the journalist. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. It's free and it's being endorsed. And it's not free because it costs us $1,000 a month to get there. But effectively, we did not pay that journalist to put that in there. No money was transacted. We made stuff available, which they then chose, which is an endorsement. So $1,000 a month isn't, you know, pocket change. So how did you, you know, decide your first one that, hey, you know, we're just going to go with uh, Pressloft and see where this goes? Or did you already have friends that had results uh, from this? No. You know, I think this is... Well, it's not a particularly interesting story, but it's a good story. You'd know how every business gets emails and calls all the time that they go delete, 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 spam. Anyway, I got this email and something about the headline twigged me and I read it and I and I went, I almost deleted it and I went, that's a freaking good idea. And so I emailed them and I said, oh, how does, can you explain a little more how it works? They said, we'll give you a free trial for three months. We were like the very first people in Australia to sign up and they said it had been really successful in the UK. So we thought, three months, it's going to take a day of my time to upload everything. You know, I can do this. So it was the free trial and the fact that sometimes people just have a really good idea that sells itself. And to me, knowing what we had done with PR up to that point, having this stuff readily available for journalists within minutes just seemed, it just made sense. I see. So you had the experience of going back and forth with Sophia Piacic, you know, her sending pictures and going back and forth that you're like, hey, you know, this is a lot easier. And yeah. I'll just go with it. And missing lines and not getting our stuff in because we couldn't get the picture to Sophie and to them quick enough. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Huh, that's, yeah, that's, I, I guess I, I would have known that unless I had experience with the PR person too. So, yeah. Huh, interesting. All right. And so let's move on to e-commerce platform a little bit. You know, are you guys on a custom platform or, you know, where is your store hosted on or how does... We aren't on a custom platform, but we're on one that I'm quite sure you haven't heard of. It's called, the company's called Zealed. And they're in New Zealand and they've developed their own platform and it's, you know, very customizable. So it wasn't as expensive as a custom build, but, you know, it wasn't, our initial website was about six and a half thousand. So we were able to control the look and I was very, very hands-on with the look. Um, And... Um, yeah, and so we use their content management system. Yeah, because I know you come from a set design background, right? So yeah. I think this comes very, like, you really want to be hands-on. You want to know whatever, every layout and where everything goes. And Oh, every font, every color. <laughs> it just comes naturally, I'm sure. Nice. So did you have uh, pre-sales before you built the website? Or did you guys just, you know, you built the site, you know, we'll build and they will come? Or did you guys even... T- yeah, no, no pre-sales. So um, just to, to step back a little bit, um, both myself and my partner, Paula, are interior designers. And we worked together for three or four years before we started EcoChic. And we did this display. It all started with a display. I'm 
I'm a tree hugger that goes way back to the 80s. Like before there was the words global warming, I was like, save the rainforest. I've always, where the opportunity um, arose to put some sustainability into my work as an interior designer, which is inherently not a sustainable activity, I did. And we had a client and they let us do a display for um, a tower that was environmentally friendly. So every item had to be environmentally friendly. Well, let me tell you, this took so much research and it was so hard to find things. But once I did, it struck, I thought, gosh, it'd be nice to open a store and just make all this stuff available to people, people who want to do the right thing, but don't know where to go and don't have a, you know, a degree in environmental science, because that's what I felt like I got during the course of doing this display. And then I thought, well, I don't have money to open a brick and mortar business, so what? And I do um, create a store online. And so it was also happened to be right when the GFC hit and a lot of my interior design work dried up. So, you know, the best time to start a business is in a downturn. So that's how it was it was born. And no, we had not sold a thing. But, you know, I had that whole long history of experience of you know, buying furniture for clients and on selling them. So I did have a, a bit of a knowledge base and some context contacts in place. Yeah, and I think sometime around like 2005, you had the whole eco like green movement kind of pick up too, right? I mean, like in Whole Foods in the U.S. and like all this stuff. Yeah, so. that's it. So it, it was harder in Australia. And I have to say, I don't know what percentage of the people who buy from us care about the environment, but um, it's not overly high, I don't think. But I like to use this analogy, you know, if a school does a fundraiser where they collect cans and then that can goes to some starving homeless guy, do you think he says, where did that can come from? I hope somebody gave it, you know, because they really wanted to, not just for a game. That's how I feel about my business. I don't really care if somebody's buying an eco-friendly product because they care deeply for the environment. I care about the net effect that I'm making, you know, a tiny bit of difference. You know, and the environment doesn't care. The environment just cares if it gets better. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And so are there any kind of tools or so apps, or, you know, software that are like kind of must have? It's funny because um, I am very excited that in the next month or two, we're going to switch over to um, Google Apps, the enterprise platform. And that is because I work from my home office. My assistant works from her home and my home office. My bookkeeper works from her home office. My PR person is in the UK and my business partner's in France. So this is just perfect for us. Rather than us constantly emailing documents to each other and emailing images, and half of us, we all have different images on our computer. We can work in one space together with access to all the documents. And the fact that it drives me absolutely crazy. You know, I'm I'm a single mother raising kids, running a business. So I will get my iPad and do work when there are swimming lessons. But then I get back to my computer and I have to resort through all those emails. Whereas with like Google Apps, you know, it's just one platform and all of your devices from your PC, your phone, your iPad are all going to be synced so that you don't ever have to do things twice and wonder, oh, which I often do this. Which computer did I send that email from? Because it's not in this sent folder. Oh. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Kate will say, did you send it? Or did I send it? Like, we never have to face that again. I, I'm so ripe for this. I'm terribly excited. Yeah. I think one thing you'll like about Google, uh, the Google Cloud, like the Word document there. Yeah. You can edit stuff in real time. And it actually shows you who edited what, like at what time in the same document. Yeah. I went to a presentation and it was amazing. And you know, you can go back to like, can I go back to the version that was at 442? 
you know, it's amazing, and and um and I love it. The thing I'm most looking forward to is just universal access to files and the fact that you know we all live on our email and calendars, and that those will all be synced. That we don't have to, you know, put something in one calendar or in notes, you know, and it doesn't go onto our PC, and that will be over, and that will save me a lot of time and. And um, stress. So let's wrap things up a little bit. You know, we'll go into some little mindset topics here. So, you know, what's one thing you wish you knew starting out? Um, nothing. Because if I knew how hard it was going to be to start a business, there's no way I would have done it. And saying that, I don't have any regrets. It has been such a passion project. I love my life. I've loved working on it. But I was naive. I thought it was going to be profitable long before it actually was. And I never imagined the kind of hours and, you know, and blood, sweat and tears I'd have to put into it. And I think most people who start businesses don't. They're all passion and idealism. And it's as it should be. If you knew what childbirth was going to be like, you'd just never have a child, you know. So yeah. So how long did it take to be profitable? Um, kind of like the time span. I'll tell you, because this is a funny question. Um we were in the black after six months, but we still don't pay ourselves a lot. Like, you know, so, so does that make sense? Because if, so, so the business is profitable, but you are not, not taking money out of it. Yet, no, right? it all goes back into the business. So right now we're doing a $7,000 website redesign because our website three and a half years ago was best practice. It was beautiful. People used to be like, oh, your website is so beautiful. And now we look at them and go, oh no, now it looks dated. So, like, you know, that's $7,000 that could have gone to Paula and I, but nope, it's going back into the site. And our motto this year is we go big or we go home. You know, we just spend, spend, spend to make this site, to push it into what it wants to be. Rather, we don't want it to just limp along. So, yeah, it's it's been in the black, which is great, but um, not with a nice salary for myself and my partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see. Interesting. Yeah, because I think there's a time where, you know, you want the business to get on its own first before you even start paying yourself. And that's something I see, you know, recurring with a lot of people too. So mm. you know, you're, you're not you're not the only one. <laughs> oh, good. My partner asks me all the time, is this normal? When, are we, when is it going to change? And I say, I don't really know. I don't think there is normal. Yeah, so. I think like some people I've talked to, they've, you know, like probably like a year and a half, two years maybe before they really start taking money out. Or at least they started taking money that was matching maybe like an old job they had or something like that too. So... But, but I think in the end, though, you know, it's comfort knowing that, you know, you have control over your time, income, and kind of mobility, too, right? Whereas you're kind of, when you're working with something else, it's a really, you don't really have these luxuries. So Terry, this is so, I, I can't emphasize this enough. When I go and have lunch with, you know, a girlfriend who's a designer and working for ogres who are slave drivers and, you know, and the stress and the lack of appreciation and the fact that she hasn't gotten a raise in five years. And I think, God, I'd rather be in poverty and the fact that, you know, I can go to my children's assembly in the middle of the day and I can work at eight o'clock at night because I want to and because I think I will make more money if I do, not because my boss has put an unreasonable deadline on me and overpromised to a client and I have nothing to gain from it. That is soul destroying. And, and what I do is just good old fashioned hard work and giving it a real go. And that never feels bad. And I think, you know, in the end, it comes down to as what do you value in life, right? I mean, do, do you want to see your kids grow up or work at a job, you know, 60 hours a week and then just to find, you know, 20 years went by like that. And kind of, that's what I'm doing with this, just to show people that, you know, there are people like you building a business out there that, you know, are making 
you know, their dreams come true, but maybe not necessarily right away, but at least that, you know, hey, if they can do it, you know, you can do it too. So, yeah, actually that, that sort of brings me to another point that I sort of wanted to share with you in terms of a lesson that I've learned, which is there was no competitors when I started and now they've been coming, they've been coming all along the way, but, you know, sort of fast and strong. Just because your competitors look big and like they're making lots of money doesn't mean they are. There's plenty of businesses out there and I don't know whether they've got, you know, wealthy partners or a trust fund or another job, but um, we've seen so many competitors come and then go and they seem bigger than us. They seem like they've got a bigger advertising budget and we're like, oh no. And then six months, year down the line, we don't hear about them. And then there's some new kid on the block. Um, we've been tempted to change, you know, when discounters hit the market, we're like, should we discount? Should we discount? We didn't. We held our ground and they fell by the wayside because suppliers got mad. You know, we always did the ethical right thing and stayed true to our vision, true to ourselves, true to our customers, true to our suppliers. Like we always took the ethical high road and did the best we could with the money we had. And that new entity that seems like they're going to wipe you out could be gone in a year. So um, that's the biggest lesson that I've learned. So that takes a lot of faith because, you know, you're saying you, know, you guys are, you guys aren't taking a lot of money out of the business yet. So, you know, I guess that's what I'm saying is how do you keep the faith when you're doing that, when you have bills to pay, you know, you have kids and, you know, you want to grow the business at the same time too. Like, how can you just say, you know, hey, I'm not going to worry about my competition and I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing. I think it actually comes down to personality. I am such an optimist. I'm so passionate. I'm such an enthusiast. And I'm quite resilient and a bit of a workaholic. I think there's a type of person that's an entrepreneur. You you have to, you know, have the fortitude to push through. And I, and I think that if it came to pass that, that you know, EcoChic was dying or it wasn't going to work or we did get wiped out by a big competitor, I'd walk away from it and I wouldn't have any regrets. But, you know, there's only certain types of people that really have the stuff in them to do something like this because it is hard and like my partner gets down I'm the cheerleader in the company and I'm the one who brings us back up and gives us the cheerleading speech and you know motivates to push ahead and you know what's the solution I don't ever focus on the problem like okay so this is a problem so what's the solution what are we going to do yeah that's that's good yeah <laughs> that's someone definitely you want to have on your team too so because <laughs> I guess for a lot of people that are you know doing it by themselves a lot of the self-doubt creeps in and so you know, I guess you're kind of the cheerleader, so it balances out the other side too, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I very, very rarely felt self doubt. At times, I have felt like maybe we our timing wasn't right, or maybe we're just too underfunded, and you know what I mean. But um, it's always been very, very temporary. But you would you would never know if the timing was wrong or right unless you did it, right? I mean, we actually got an initial business loan from. Um, NAB. I walked into a government service that's like helps small businesses, and he said, "This is the best business plan I've seen in three years. I think this dog hunt. You might be a bit early, but I want to advocate for you to um, a bank that we are allied with called NAB." We went in there. I got a young banker, and she said, "We, well, you know, we think this could take a few years. You're a bit early, but we think this could happen." And you know, and they believed in me, and I think. Why wait for other people to prove this model? Why not just give it a go? It's not that much money, you know? Why not be the early person? Why wait to try to follow the way? Yeah, exactly. And you, you know, you're, you're saying here reminds me of this video of Steve Jobs I watched. And he was, it was made sometime in like 1995. And he was saying how 
uh, you know, when we grow up, you know, we're told the world is a certain way and things work, you know, this way, that way. You're not supposed to touch it. But once you realize that, you know, you poke life this way, it comes, something comes out the other end and like you can change things. Like that's when the paradigm shift happens. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, I hate, you know, I can create stuff and add value that people would buy. And then, you know, and you, and you look back at, you know, getting a job and you're just like, like, why would I do that again? It's, <laughs> it's just like a huge shift. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think, do you know how many people said, oh, no, people, when I started this business, only 3% of Australians shopped online, whereas in the UK and the US, 25% of people shopped online. So I just went, wait a minute, obviously shopping online works. What do you tell me? Australians inherently won't buy online. People said, yes, they won't. They're just, they're just, I could not find a single article anywhere supporting this idea. I just believed that if people did it elsewhere and they loved it, and I loved it, I'm obviously American, living in Australia, and I went, they will, but they can't now because nobody's offering it to them. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's kind of like that here in Asia too, where a lot of people, I think it's still kind of like 10 years behind the US, like people are buying online, but they're buying from places only like Amazon and eBay, where the US in the early 2000s, it was like the only guys too, right? You didn't have your own little shops that people could set up too. So, and so, uh, you know, last question. You know, what's the biggest business lesson you've learned? You know, throughout the years. Well, besides what I, you know, sort of what I told you about not thinking that your competitors are maybe as big or as successful as they appear to be. Um, actually, just a, a personal thing, and that is that to not take the little the little failures personally. And when you're dealing with the public you're going to get people who are grumpy. And I have found that sometimes people can be quite mean and quite nasty on the phone or by email. And I just used to feel gutted. And I and I still do to some degree. But I found this great thing online and it's posted on my wall. And it says, I do not engage in confrontation with anyone in person or online. This is a waste of my time and only brings unhappiness. If I've caused harm, I will apologize and fix the situation. And then I take a deep breath and refocus my efforts back on my work and my goals. And I have to look up at that when somebody's yelling over the phone because they haven't received their product yet because the courier can't find it. You know, that's not my fault. All I can do is try to do best job I can by this person but it can be upsetting when things start to go wrong and people are upset and um you can't you can't let that get you down and do you find that it gets easier over time to get numb to feedback like this or does it still sting you know after all these years it still stings I'm a really like sensitive person I'm like a people pleaser you know I don't like to disappoint people and I feel because Ikoshik is my baby it's like they're insulting my child you know what I mean and and um, I do take it personally. So I have had to make an active decision not to. It could be completely disheartening dealing with the public when they're not always nice. But, you know, you just focus on the people that, you know, thank you and are appreciative and spread the word and, and do the best you can by the, you know, for the people who aren't happy, you know. So, no, it's been a conscious decision. And, and I think more people are like me than are just numb to that kind of reaction. Yeah, and that's just what entrepreneurship is about, right? Just putting yourself out there in the world and, you know, seeing what comes back and keep you keep putting yourself out there and you keep giving and giving and then, you know, it's, it's, it's like a never-ending thing too, so. <laughs> You're so right. And that's the different, and that's what entrepreneurs do take it personally. I remember when I was a sales girl, you know, at like a sports shop and clients would get upset with me. It didn't bother me in the least. It wasn't my company. It wasn't my product. It I wasn't personally invested, but entrepreneurs... It is their baby, you know, and and it's a completely different 
feeling when things go wrong. And I wouldn't tell entrepreneurs who are thinking of starting a business to sort of, you know, like toughen up and get numb, but find tools for for coping with it, like I have, which is, you know, paste something on your wall and just remember what you can and can't do. Yeah, it's kind of like just rechanneling that energy somewhere else too. So, That's it. Yeah, exactly. Because I think it's a, it takes a type of person to, you know, create something on their own, put it out there, and knowing that you, knowing that you're going to get criticism, and to take it and to keep doing it again over and over too. So yeah, yeah, that's why sure. I enjoy uh, talking to entrepreneurs like yourself too. Yeah, all right. And so uh, you know, last question: Where can we find you guys online? We're at um, www.ecochic.com.au. All right, awesome. So if you guys want to check out uh, eco-friendly furniture for your house. Uh, go over there and you guys ship only in australia or do you ship international no we'll ship anywhere um i have to say the big items um can sometimes it's as expensive as the item itself but smaller items no problem anywhere in the world gotcha all right very cool all right thanks so much chris and i guess uh, we'll keep in touch thanks so much terry to get more information about running an online store visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.